If you will, turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter 1. We just sung the hymn, He Leadeth Me, which has a picture, right, of, of God leading us through a wilderness and ultimately God leading us through the Jordan into the promised land. And uh, that's what we're begin, going to begin looking at is this uh, period of time in Israel's history when they were uh, in the wilderness in the book of Numbers and making their way uh, to the promised land. Of course, with many things happening Uh, in between their exodus from Egypt and their ultimate uh, arrival to uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, As we begin making our way through this book, um, we're going to be covering some large sections. So uh, today we're we're covering the whole of chapter 1, which means, of course, that we're not going to cover every single verse in in fine detail as we we move through it. But we're going to get the overviews of the the main things that are going on throughout this book. So what I want to do this evening is I want to read, beginning in verse 1, and uh, we'll read all the way down to verse 19, and then I'm just going to read the, the numbering um, of the, uh, the, the tribes of, of Israel, and, uh, and I'll tell you where we'll, we'll pick up after, uh, after that. Uh, but, but follow along as we start by reading uh, Numbers chapter 1. And uh, beginning in verse 1. The text says here, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head, from twenty years old and upward, all in Israel who are able to go to war, you and Aaron shall list them company by company. And there shall be with you a man from each tribe, each man being the head of the house of his fathers. And these are the names of the men who shall assist you. From Reuben, Elizer, the son of Shadiur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, the son of Zuri Shaddai. From Judah, Nashon, the son of Aminadab. From Issachar, Nathanael, the son of Zuar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Joseph, from Ephraim, Elishema, the son of Amihud. And from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Pedahuzer. From Benjamin, Abidan, the son of Gideonai. From Dan, Ahiezer, the son of Amishadai. From Asher, Pajiel, the son of Ochran. From Gad, Eliasaph, the son of Deuel. From Naphtali, Ahira, the son of Enan. And these were the ones chosen from the congregation, the chiefs of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. Moses and Aaron took these men who had been named, and on the first day of the second month, they assembled the whole congregation together who registered themselves by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names from twenty years old and upward, head by head, as the Lord commanded Moses. 
So he listed them in the wilderness of Sinai. And then I'm just going to read some of these uh, totals here. So in verse 21, those listed of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Verse 23, those listed of the tribe of Simeon were 59,300. Verse 25, those listed of the tribe of Gad were 45,650. Verse 27, those listed of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. Verse 29, those listed of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. Verse 31, those listed of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. Verse 33, those listed of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Verse 35, those listed of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. Verse 37, those listed of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Verse 39, those listed of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. Verse 41, those listed of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Verse 43, those listed of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. These are those who were listed, whom Moses and Aaron listed with the help of the chiefs of Israel. Twelve men, each representing his father's house. So all those listed of the people of Israel by their father's houses from twenty years old and upward, every man able to go to war in Israel, all those listed were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed along with them by their ancestral tribe. But the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not list and you shall not take a census of them among the people of Israel. But appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony and over all its furnishings and over all that belongs to it. They are to carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings and they shall take care of it and shall camp around the tabernacle. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levite shall set it up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel. They did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. Well, let's uh, open up uh, our time together with a word of prayer. Well, Father, as we begin our study through the book of Numbers this morning, or this evening, rather, uh, Lord, we do pray that you would help us to see the, the many ways in which even this Old Testament book with its listings and its sacrificial instructions and its instructions about a feast and camps, the many ways in which this continues to instruct us even today and to bear witness to your faithfulness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand what you were doing here in the days of Israel. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Well, like I said, tonight we are beginning this study through the book of Numbers. 
And uh, this is a book that, of course, for many, uh, seems to be a rather odd book. It's a rather distant book, and perhaps for some, it's, it's even a book that seems a little irrelevant. Uh, the very first chapter, of course, begins with this census, this numbering of the people of Israel, and uh, you know who, when they're memorizing Bible verses, wants to begin in Numbers chapter 1 and memorize a whole census of the people of Israel. You know, what could be so important about the amount of men who were able to go to war uh, for Israel? And of course, I mean, what particular relevance does this have for us uh, even today. Throughout the book of Numbers, there are chapters about camp arrangements and where each tribe was to be stationed and where they were to place their standards and where they were to camp in reference to the tabernacle and when they were to set out, when they were to, to journey throughout the wilderness, how exactly and in what order they were to, uh, to, to break camp and, and to move on. There's instructions in this book for uh, how to treat someone who is ceremonially unclean. Uh, There are chapters addressing how an inheritance was to be preserved and passed down, especially at the the end of the book when when there's an issue with uh, a certain tribe or a certain clan of people who've been cut off from Israel. How, How does this inheritance continue on through them? There are chapters that are, of course, giving instructions about the proper sacrifices that are to be offered at the proper time. And all of these things, of course, can seem very distant to us. They can seem very ancient and, again, almost irrelevant to us. Just things of a a bygone era that have no real bearing on our lives today. These were instructions for an ancient people in this ancient time and in a situation that has been long since gone. This was, this was written about a, a people who were wandering in a wilderness. And, and who are we? We're, we're a people who, who live in suburbs. and you know, We live in rural areas, right? We're, we're not wandering in the wilderness. My life is completely different from theirs. So what could this book say to me? And I want to take a moment as we begin this evening to address some of these matters. Why should we go through a book like the book of Numbers? Why should we not only study this as as a church, but why should this be one of those books that as we're reading through the Bible, we we, we make note to to, to always read through the first five books of of the Bible, including the book of, of Numbers? We can certainly recognize that the Bible says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness, right? We can can recognize that based upon 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, right, that that this is the Word of God and that in, in some way it has relevance to us and and in some way, right, it, it is inspired Scripture. Right? We, we, we can recognize that. But, but of course, this is a, a rather obvious conclusion and, and one that may instruct us in our obligations, but it, it may not entice our sinful hearts right, to, to want to get into this book. Sometimes we, 
We, of course, need a little bit more than the, the mere fact that a book is the Word of God to, to have an interest in it. And, and unfortunately, that's, uh, that's not a good thing, but it is reality. It's, it's not because there's anything lacking in, in God's Word. It's not because this, this book is in any way less inspired than the book of Romans or Ephesians or, or 1 Peter. Sometimes our lack of interest in particular books can be due to our own sinful hearts and our, our, our own blindness in, in understanding the, the riches that are, that are here. So what are some additional reasons that we have for going through a book like this besides the fact that it is canon, that it is in Scripture? Well, one reason I would suggest is because the book of Numbers is really a book that is about where we are currently in this very moment. As disciples of Christ, as, as new covenant believers, we are those who are still awaiting to enter into the promised land. We are those who are very much the same way in the wilderness. The name of the, the book of Numbers, in fact, in, in, in the Hebrew, uh, is, is called in, in the Wilderness. The first five books begin by the, the very first words that are, are written. And the very first words that are written in this book is in the Wilderness. And, and currently, that is how new, the New Testament itself frames our current state. You, you can read this like all throughout the New Testament. There's examples all over the place where, where we as New Covenant believers now are, are those who are, are currently in the wilderness. We've not yet arrived to our final inheritance. We, we live in a land. We live in a country that is not our own. We are citizens right, of, a, of a heavenly kingdom are citizens of, a, of another land, a celestial city. And so, of course, all throughout the, the New Testament, this imagery is evoked to help us to think properly about where we are now and what our current relation to the world is. I mean, you can, you can just think for a moment, right? I mean, if you're, if you're viewing your own life and you're your, your, your present walk in this world as, as though it's in the wilderness, you don't want to hold on to that. Right? It, it, it's not as if the, the things that the, the desert is enticing you with, no matter how good they may be, right? No matter how good that, that, uh, that drink of water may be, you, you want something better. Right? You, you want a better land. And that's part of the reason why many of the New Testament authors are are indeed framing our, our very walk in this current moment as we await for Christ, is, is using the imagery of the wilderness and, and being in exile. So take, for example, the book of 1 Peter. Right? What we're going through right now in, in Sunday morning. How does Peter begin by addressing the people of God? What does he call them? He, he calls them elect exiles. They are, they are those who are currently not living in their, their homeland. Right? They're, uh, they're in some sense uh, apart from uh, the promised land of God. And of course at the end of, of the book, in, in Peter's final greeting, 
even though we know that he's writing this letter to these believers throughout Asia from the city of Rome, he describes this, his location of where he is as, as being in Babylon. Right? He's not in Israel. He's, though he's in Rome, he's not in Rome. He's in Babylon. He's in the land of exile, the land that is separate from the inheritance of the people of God. In other words, Peter frames his own existence as the existence of, and the existence of his fellow uh, Christians as, as those who are presently in exile. We are outside of the promised land. We are uh, awaiting to enter. Uh, the book of Revelation, I think, is, is similar in that much of the visions of God's judgments and His uh, acts of salvation are framed using the imagery of the exodus uh, in the wilderness. So, for example, we find in Revelation chapter 8 a description of the trumpet blast of angels that bring God's judgments on the world. And at the blowing of these trumpets, we see hail and fire being thrown down on the earth. We see the sea being turned into blood. We see the sun and the moon and the stars being darkened. And these all, as well as other judgments in the book of Revelation, correspond to the judgments that you find in the book of Exodus when the plagues were sent against the Egyptians. You've got the seventh plague of hail and fire. You've got the first plague of the Nile turning into blood with the the fish dying, of course, which corresponds to the creatures in the sea dying in the book of Revelation. You've got the ninth plague of the three days of darkness. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, the people of Israel at that point are instructed about how to keep the Feast of Booths in celebration of God's provisions for them in the wilderness. And in addition to many of the prescribed sacrifices that they are to offer, they're, they're told to take branches of palm trees and rejoice before the Lord with these, these palm trees. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verses 9 and following, we find there a, a multitude of people from, from every tribe, from every nation, from every people, and they're all standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they're singing, and they're celebrating the salvation of the Lord. Revelation is a book in essence about a new and even greater exodus to come. When God will free His people from Egypt. When He will call them out of exile from Babylon. When He will lead them out of the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land. Which comes at the very end of the book where we are in the presence of God and entering into a new Eden. And once again having access to the tree of life. It's a it's a book about our departure uh, from this 
world that is under judgment and our ultimate entrance into the Garden of Eden. So as of right now, we are those who are awaiting that entrance. We are in the wilderness. We are wandering and following the Lord wherever His pillar of cloud and fire leads us. We are following His lead. He is our Moses. He is our Joshua. He is the one who goes before us and whom we follow. One other example to to draw your attention to is is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you want to turn with me there for a moment, we'll look at that one in a little bit more detail. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And uh, here in this chapter, Paul is, is warning New Covenant believers, or warning this, this church at, at Corinth against engaging in and, and participating in pagan idolatry. And I want you to notice what, what he says here, beginning in verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 11. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Things that happened to the wilderness generation, Paul says they happened as examples for us. They they were, the word is actually types. They were types of, of a people to come. Just as they were in the wilderness and just as they had opportunity to either follow the Lord in response to His saving works or to rebel against Him and harden their hearts against Him and engage in idolatry and grumble against against Him. So also is it the case for us as as we are in this wilderness following the same Christ that they followed, being provided for by the same Christ who provided for them when He gave water to drink to them from a 
a dry rock. We, we follow the same Lord. And Paul is saying that, that you need to heed the example of, of the wilderness generation and do not fall into the idolatry that they fell into. Do not follow their example, particularly of that first generation whom he said some 23,000 fell in a single day. And as we will see in a moment, virtually all of the 603,000 died over the course of 40 years. This is, a, this is a book that Paul is very clearly presenting to us as, as an example to be instructed by. And so what the book of Numbers presents before us is in essence one of two examples to be followed. Either we can model the example of the first generation of Israelites who hardened their hearts against God, who engaged in rampant sexual immorality and idolatry and who were subsequently judged and faced the curses of the covenant. Or we can imitate the second generation, who even though they certainly had flaws of their own, even though they, they had sins, they, they obeyed God and His commands to enter into the promised land, and, and they were able to see God's miraculous works and provisions for them as He led them into the land of Canaan. So on the one hand... The book of Numbers is a book about where we are in exile. We are in the wilderness. and It's an example to us. It's an ex exhortation to faithfulness and a, and a warning against rebellion. But I think as well, additionally, the, the book of Numbers is about God's faithfulness and His faithfulness to his promises that he had made long ago. God had promised to bring the people of Israel into the land of Canaan and to give it to them as an inheritance. This was a promise, of course, that was made to them some 400 years prior, specifically to their, their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And even though the people of Israel repeatedly rebelled against God and, and of course, deserved only to be wiped out, and, and even though God brought His judgments against the first generation and indeed pretty much did wipe out that entire first generation, He still remained faithful. And He raised up a, another generation. And He kept His promises that He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the people of Israel. I think we find another example of the faithfulness, though, of the faithfulness of God, even in the, this first chapter of the book of Numbers. This census that we just read provides, of course, a, an accounting of those who, who could serve in Israel's military. It didn't necessarily mean, of course, that every time they went to battle that they brought all 600,000 plus people uh, to, 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 to go to war. Sometimes they would send 
10,000. Sometimes they would send 30,000. But it's, it's, a, it's just a census of, of all of the men who, if needed, could go to war. But it's also, I think, a, a testimony to God's faithfulness in blessing the people of Israel and multiplying them to become more numerous than the stars of heaven and to become more numerous than the sands of the sea. All the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God had, of course, entered into a covenant with Abraham. An old man at the time married to an old woman who was barren and unable to to have children. And he promised this, this very, to this very same Abraham that he would raise up an offspring for him in whom all of the nations would be blessed. And along with this promise was a promise that his offspring would then multiply greatly. God said to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, verse 5, He said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. You look up to the heavens. You tell me if you can number those stars. That's how many your offspring are going to be. Later in, in chapter 22, verse 17, after God is obedient, or excuse me, Abraham is obedient to God and, and offers his son Isaac as, as a sacrifice, believing, as the author of Hebrews says, that, that even though he... He were to, if he had to actually go through with killing his son, he, he had confidence that, that God would be able to raise him from the dead. Right? He had this, this level of trust in the Lord at this moment. And after this takes place, God commends him for his faith. And he says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. By the time you reach the, the end of the book of Genesis, Abraham's family has, has now grown to be some 70 people who goes into Egypt. But 70 people is not the amount of stars that there are. Right? 70 people is, is not the, what you can number, the, the, the sands of, of the sea. It's not the, the dust of the earth. right? That's a, that's a very small fraction of people. We come to the book of Numbers, however, and we, we read this census and we see how many people the nation of Israel had grown to. We find that they had indeed grown exponentially. That God had multiplied them greatly. Moses, just about a month after the events of of the book of Exodus. This is where the, the book of Numbers picks up. By the instruction of God, he, he tells the heads of each tribe to number all of the men who were 20 years old and, and upward who would be able to go to war. And as each tribe is numbered for war, with the exception, of course, of the Levites, whose responsibility was to care for the tabernacle and not go uh, to war. The total number of men, men who were able to go to war, we're told, came to 603,550. Now, if you account for the women, and you account for the children, 
And then you account for this mixed multitude who also left Egypt with the people of Israel, we're told in Exodus 12. So there were, there were additional people from, from other nations who probably joined themselves to Israel. You account for all of those people who left Egypt, you're probably looking at somewhere around two and a half million people who've left Egypt and who are now in the wilderness. In 400 years, the people of Israel had multiplied from being this small nation that no one knew because they were so tiny. They go from 70 people to now being around two and a half million people. Their numbers had become staggering, such that when you come near to the end of the book of Numbers and you read Balaam's first oracle concerning Israel, Balaam says, from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Balaam is saying that if he goes to the top of a mountain and he looks at this vast array of, of Israelite people, they are so large that they can't be numbered. It's like looking, indeed, at the the dust of the earth, he says. God had indeed blessed them greatly. And He had kept His promise to Abraham, who began as one man, an old man, with an old wife who couldn't have children. And now, within 400 years, there are two and a half million strong. There are, of course, some who look at these numbers and, and they just can't believe them. This, this kind of multiplication just doesn't make sense. It's, it's not believable. It's impossible. And many scholars who will talk about these numbers will often raise several objections that they find with, with this accounting here. For one thing, there are some scholars who argue that that this number of people was so large that it's impossible to believe that they could have survived in the wilderness without some miraculous intervention. Perhaps like water from a rock or manna from heaven that appears on the dew of the ground each morning. Or perhaps millions of quail being sent from the sea. Those miraculous interventions might, might do. Some, they, they look at these numbers and they go, this, this couldn't have happened without some sort of divine work taking place. An astute observation, we might say. To these scholars, we might just need to remind them as well of what we read in Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, where Moses himself 
was having a difficult time believing how all of these people could be provided for. And the Lord Himself says to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see, He says, whether My word will come true for you or not. And He provides the, the quail for the people to eat. Others argue that it would have been impossible for such a massive population to move around as they did for, for those 40 years. This is an interesting matter to consider, but I was reminded a few weeks ago, I came across a, a picture, I, I follow this, uh, this page on, on Facebook that frequently posts historical pictures, and they, they posted a, a picture of the very first Woodstock concert in 1969 took place on, I believe it was uh, one square mile total, and there were about a half a million people who were there. And you, you've got a picture of it taken from a helicopter, and you can see all of the people in this one square mile area. Well, the people of Israel are about four or five times that amount, but throughout their wanderings in the wilderness, you're talking about around 20,000 square miles that they would have had to have covered. I think that was doable in light of what we've even seen in our own recent history. But one of the more interesting objections that I've come across has been the amount of children that each woman would have had to have had, uh, uh, would have had to have given birth to, to make up such a a large number. I'm not going to get into the, the math here, but if you account for how many firstborn children there were based on the number of Levites, and, and you average out the remaining who weren't firstborn, the estimates are that each family had to have consisted of about 27 children. 27 children. Guys, and five children, it's a, it's a big family. We're talking 27 here. And that reason alone causes many scholars to say that there's no way that could have happened. So there have been several proposals for how to interpret this census of Numbers 1 in light of these objections and, and some others that have been raised. I'm not going to go over all of them, but I do want to point out three. Some have suggested that the census is actually based on a later population count of Israel during the days of the monarchy. And so what happened was that you had a, a later author who basically imposed a, a census that would have been taken in, say, David's day and this later author imposed those numbers on the text of Numbers. It doesn't lend much um, confidence in the, uh, uh, the accuracy of the Word of God. But that's what some scholars uh, have proposed. Some others have suggested, uh, and many evangelicals, in fact, have suggested, uh, or if you will, I would say, maybe in air quotes, so-called evangelical scholars. They are uh, a wide variety. But some have suggested that 
We ought to read these numbers as hyperbole. They're exaggerations that are meant to be interpreted almost symbolically to emphasize how great Israel was and and how faithful their God was. This This is just something common that ancient people did. They They inflated their numbers just to to make sort of a symbolic point about how great they had become. They suggest that we should read these numbers like we might read other numbers in a book like the book of Revelation. Even though the book of Numbers is a narrative and the book of Revelation is clearly apocalyptic literature intended to be interpreted symbolically. There are many other proposed solutions, but this next one in particular caught my attention. A commentator named Timothy Ashley wrote this. He said, Some evangelical scholars have held that the easiest solution is simply to take the numbers at their face values as the compiler of the present text and others obviously has done. That's insightful take them as they are written, to take them to be accurate descriptions of the amount of people that there were. I think, for me, this solution sounds rather fitting. For one thing, it's, it's not that difficult to find records, right, even within the, Bi- the Bible, of massive 27-plus children families especially uh, these uh, large families, uh, considered large in comparison to to today's uh, families. So I'll I'll just give you four four as an example of these large families, all from the book of Judges. So in Judges chapter 8, verse 30, we're told that Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, it says, 70 sons. Sons, and, and, and that, of course, doesn't include any daughters that he uh, might have had as well. One of the reasons that was given for his particular large family, of course, we would take issue with the explanation that is given in the text is, is that he had these 70 sons because he had many wives. So not a, not a good testimony of faithfulness to your wife, uh, but uh, an example of of the reason why uh, someone may have a a rather large family. In Judges chapter 10, verse 4, we're told of a man named Jair, the Gileadite, who had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 cities. Again, not describing how many daughters there may have been as well. He has 30 sons, no mention of multiple wives. In Judges chapter 12, verse 9, we're told of Ibzan of Bethlehem, who who likewise had 30 sons and 30 daughters. And in that same chapter, in verse 14, we're told of Abdon, the son of Hillel, who had 40 sons and 30 grandsons. The point is that the Israelites certainly could have rather large families and did have rather large families. 
Sometimes there are single women who are giving birth to 10 plus children over the course of their lives. Sometimes there are multiple women and even concubines, unfortunately, involved in this multiplication. The point is not to say that how Israel grew to such a large size was always through righteous and faithful and monogamous marriages. We certainly know that they were a deeply sinful people who had embraced many of the ways of the nation. The point is simply to point out that having such large families is not impossible, and most importantly, not a reason not to take the numbers of the census at face value. Additionally, if you read Exodus chapter 38, verses 25 to 28, the same exact number is given for the amount of men in Israel who were 20 years old and older, and there's nothing in the text that would suggest that you should read this as some form of hyperbole. The the, the context is dealing with the temple tax and and collecting a a certain amount of of money and and provisions to build the, uh, excuse me, the, the tabernacle. And the same number is provided, total, 603,550 men, able-bodied men of this first generation. All this is to say that numbers one is to be taken as an accurate record of the amount of people that made up the able-bodied fighters in Israel. And it is the census that shows us that God had multiplied the people of Israel greatly in fulfillment of His promises that He had made to Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob. Now, as the, the book unfolds, it will also serve, this census here will also serve as a as a warning, because virtually every single person with just a couple of exceptions in this census will perish in the wilderness, in the wilderness under uh, the judgment of God because of their sin. But as it begins, uh, this as it begins in, in the beginning of the book, it shows us how greatly God had blessed the people even in the midst of slavery in Egypt. So I think it should encourage us. It should encourage us to to be a people who trust in promises that God has made even if they are promises that just sound impossible. A promise of 70 people later becoming two and a half million plus. that's, That's impossible. Especially for a people who was in bondage, a uh, an afflicted people in, in Egypt. It, no one in their right mind is going to think some kind of multiplication like that is going to happen. And yet, our testimony is that that is exactly what did happen. So again, it's an encouragement uh, to us to, to trust in those promises of God and, and, and to, to, to be assured that, that He will fulfill them all uh, in His uh, own good time and according to his own good pleasure. So I'm going to stop there and um, close us with, with prayer, um, except it looked like you wanted to, to ask a question, and so I'll...
that's true. Uh, they had children much earlier. It's also true that their view of having children was much higher than our own. And, and I mean that even as solid, Bible-grounded believers, right? I, I mean, you know, if, if a woman couldn't have children, like in the Old Testament, I, I mean, this is, this is like God's judgment on her, right? And, and if she can have, you know, five, ten, fifteen children, I mean, this is, this is the Lord's grace, right? This is, this is the full quiver that you want. This is her honor. It's her shame if she can't have any. It's her honor if she, she can. So, you know, the, the, the emphasis on a, on a young woman being fertile and producing many offspring was much, much greater than it is for us. Right? Now it's, everything's about like planning the, you know, the, the perfect number. And it's like once we get to a certain amount, like we're, we're done. Now, for them, it's like we're going to keep on going until I can't anymore. Right? So, yeah, I mean, even the, the, the views of, of children are very different. All right, well, let me uh, close this in a word of prayer, okay? Well, Father, again, we are reminded from this early chapter of the book of Numbers how indeed faithful you were to your people Israel, even as they were afflicted in Egypt and even as they had in many ways become such an idolatrous people in Egypt. Uh, Lord, as even as, as, as testimony shows us throughout the book of Exodus and, and even in the book of Numbers, how many of them had embraced so many of the ways of the, of the pagans around them, yet you, you remained faithful. You remained faithful to your promises. And it's, it's a reminder to us, Lord, that, that even, even when we fail, even when we sin, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful to your promises. And so, Lord, I, I pray that this would encourage us to be looking to you, that it would uh, rebuke us as, as Paul uses this, this book in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that it would rebuke us from, from any um, drifting into idolatry, that we would be reminded of the warnings that we find here as well, and so remain faithful uh, to Christ. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.